Life Manitou. Morning. <laughs> I'm Erica Kirkendall, and I'm the Director of Community here at New Life Manitou. If you could all please stand for the scripture reading. Our reading today comes from 1 Samuel 1.19-20. Early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. First Samuel 2, 11-26 Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Now it was the practice of the priests that, whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, Give me the pre- give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the person said to him, Let the fat be burned first and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, No, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. This sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord. A boy wearing a linen ephod. Each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli blessed Elkanah and his wife, saying, May the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. Then they would go home, and the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So he said to them, Why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and his people. Exodus 4, 21-23 The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, See that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. Then say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, Let my son go so he may worship me. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. My name is Brett. I'm the associate pastor here. It's a new thing, a new hire, so it's 
So I've been, been here 15 weeks for those of you, that, or 15 months for those of you who don't know the story. And um, yeah, uh, just, just came on staff, so it's wonderful. Who wants to hear a sermon on the judgment of God this morning? <laughs> Right, or, or, or like most of us who are like, I don't know, feel like a little like sick to our stomach when we, when we hear that. Don't we? We feel a little like um, we're a little less than enthusiastic, not exactly how we spend our Sunday morning. Um, the judgment of God doesn't exactly sound like a, an encouraging topic. It doesn't exactly sound like good news, does it? The, the judgment of God. Um, that's what we're in for. Here as we uh, as we uh, move into chapter two of one Samuel, um, this sermon, FYI, as I was driving here today, I had the image. I don't know if it's a prophetic image. I don't know if it's just my imagination. Whatever. Um, but it, it, uh, the image was of Splash Mountain. You guys have Splash Mountain at like Disneyland. It's like you go up like a roller coaster and then you crest the top of the hill and then you plunge into the water. That's what the sermon, I think, is going to be. Um, the first um, little bit of the sermon is going to feel like clink, 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 clink. And then at some point, um, we're going to crest the hill, and we're going to, you're going to feel it, and we're going to start plunging down, and we're going to hit, splash into something um, surprising, I think. Um, so just, um, let's pray. For that, because that's uh, I think that's what we're waiting for this morning. God, um, I do uh, I think you're going to do a miracle in this place this morning. Um, in a lot of us, I don't exactly know what that looks like, but that's heavy on my heart this morning. And so we ask. Uh, it's not something that I can do. It's not something any words that I've prepared can do. Um, it's you. And so we still ourselves right now before you, and we say, Come, Spirit. Spirit of Christ, Spirit of the Father, come, make us alive. We ask, we pray, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 So, uh, yeah, we're in chapter uh, 2 of, of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel. I a lot of times find myself... Saying after an Australian scholar named John Golden Gay. Um, Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel are just, um, it's not like there was 1 Samuel and then came the sequel, 2 Samuel. Um, it's just one book, but because of scroll length, there wasn't such a thing as books in the ancient world. Um, it get divided up into two scrolls, the length of the story. So I, I tend to, if, if, I, if I have a peculiar habit of saying 1 Samuel, now you know why. It's just a distinguished. Uh, there wasn't a second just part one and part two. Um, last week we began the story of um, this story with a woman named Hannah. You guys remember, some of you were here last week, and we, and we remember Joe walked us through the story of Hannah, who's been longing and praying and like aching for a child year after year. This is what she wanted and prayed for, and eventually God granted her request. Um, I want to tap into what we uh, read a little bit last week. Um, she's like pouring her, her heart out. At, um, it's in the tabernacle. It's in this, um, the, this is before the temple of Jerusalem is built. It's in this tabernacle at a place called Shiloh, the height 
Um, they're, they're here in this tabernacle. She's pouring her, her heart out to God in such prayer um, that Eli the priest comes over. He's like the high priest, and he thinks that she's drunk because she's in such prayer. Um, and uh, Hannah actually says to him in verse 16, Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Oh, please, give me a child. She's explaining, don't, don't miss I'm not a wicked woman. I'm not a, literally it says I'm not a worthless woman. Um, actually, literally, if you want the Hebrew idiom of it, what it actually says is she's a bet, don't mistake me for a bet baliaal, is what she says. A daughter of wickedness. A daughter of worthlessness is what she says. And Eli, he recognizes that he's made some sort of, he's stepped in it, you know, here. Um, because he, <laughs> oops, because um, Eli answers, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked him. And she said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. And then she went away and ate something and her face was no longer down the past. That's where we left off last week. And the story continues in verse 19. We heard it read, early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord. And then they went back home to Ramah, Elkanah, made or Elkanah. Tomato, tomato. Um, you're supposed to just pronounce Bible names with confidence and nobody will question you. That's, that's the trick. Uh, Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. It's this beautiful moment when you finally see the faithfulness of the Lord gave birth to a son. And then as chapter 1 ends, we find Hannah, uh, we won't read it, but we find Hannah nursing her son until he's old enough to wean. He's grown up to be some sort of like toddler. And then Hannah and Elkanah, or Elkanah, her husband, bring little toddling Samuel back to Eli the priest, back to the tabernacle. Uh, if you uh, remember last week, that's where Hannah had promised the Lord that she would give this child to the Lord. That was part of her prayer. I'll give you this child. And then uh, chapter 12, there's this beautiful, like, prophetic prayer that uh, Hannah prays in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, um, in verse 11. Um, then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and they leave toppling Samuel. The Lord, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. What did we just hear about Eli and his priests and his sons that are serving under him? Under him. Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. It literally, it says they, they did not know the Lord. That's literally what it says. It's this brilliant um, narrative detail right here, if, like in the Hebrew, because verse 12 literally says, it says, the sons of Eli were sons of Belial, is literally what it says right here. It's this tragic irony that the high priest, just like last chapter, the high priest of God had accused Hannah of being a daughter of Belial, of, of worthlessness, wickedness, just no good. But it's actually his sons who are serving under him as priests who are sons of Belial. Belial is like this, um, 
negative kind of like uh, word. And yaal is this um, a value kind of word in Hebrew, in meaning like prof, profit or value or benefit or something like that. And so if you put them together, the negative with this, you get belly yaal, meaning no benefit, no profit, no worth, no substance. The sons of Eli were sons of Belial, is what it says here. And when the biblical authors say something like this, like daughter of courage, or, or son of despair, or, or so I'm just making up examples right now. But um, when they say something like this, it's actually a Hebrew idiom. It's a way of talking um, that says that somebody profoundly embodies something is what it's saying. And so the, the daughter of courage is a courageous woman. The, the, the son of despair is a despairing man. Um, Jesus actually called a couple of his disciples. Do you guys remember? He called James and John sons of thunder. thunder. That's right. Apparently these guys were like boisterous, powerful, and loudmouths. And at least once they like wanted to call down the judgment of God to like rain fire down on people that they thought were their enemies. Hophni and Phineas, these are the names of Eli's sons, they have become a different kind of children than just children of Eli. They are they're children of Belial. They have no their lives. What they embody has no profit, no worth, no substance. They're scoundrels, sure. That's the way the NIV translates it. But worse than that, worse than scoundrels, they're bankrupt. They're empty. They have not, they're absolutely empty of everything that matters is their problem. We've already uh, looked at what, they, what they're doing, but let's read it again, just because if you're like me, it takes a couple of times through to not really see that and click, especially with the Bible, what's going on. Verse uh, 13, it says, Now it was the practice of the priests, that this seems to be, their scholars differ on what this means, but it seems like this was typically what priests would do. It was the practice of the priests that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, so it was after the sacrifice, the priest's servant would come, come along with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. Whatever the fork brought up was what the priest would take for itself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But before the fat was burned, this would be Hophni and Phineas, it would seem, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. This sounds like Donald Trump. I didn't mean for it to. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing political about him, I realize Give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the person said to him, well, let the fat be burned first, and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. This sin of the young man was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Hophni and Phinehas, um, they're called young men right here. Narim is what they're uh, called, um, which typically gets translated like 
youth or young man. Uh, but don't get the impression that these guys are like teenagers, just making stupid teenager mistakes. Um, these guys are old enough to know better. Is, um, in later traditions, priests had to be at least 30 years old to serve as priests. So these guys are old enough to know better. These guys are old enough that they are making repeated choices and decisions and practicing patterns in their lives that are solidifying them into a particular kind of person, into sons of Belial, completely worthless, bankrupt people. These guys, <laughs> they're, they're in positions of authority, but they are like systematically abusing everything that they have been given. According to um, the Torah, to specifically the book of Leviticus. Um, priests could, this is how priests ate, they did get a portion of what people uh, sacrificed. No problem there. The, the, the eating, the, the sacrifice, isn't the problem. Priests should eat from the sacrifices, but never the fatty parts. Because in that culture, that was like a culture, culturally, that was considered especially sacred. Like, this is like super condensed energy in fat, you know? It, like, that's what, that's what it is. And so, like, that gets burned explicitly for, for, for the gods, for, for, in, in ancient Israel, for Yahweh. And they could eat, but only after the sacrifices were made. And they could eat, but only after the work of interceding between Yahweh and the people, and between mediating between person and person, and mediating disputes, only after all of that work is done do these priests take food. But these jokers, Eli, or Eli's sons, Phineas and Hophni, they're like the ancient equivalent of like corrupt congressmen. You know what I mean? Like the kind of people that are just like, ugh, kind of like make us nauseous a little bit. They've got a little bit. Of authority, and they are using it how to fatten themselves. They're like they are the, the original fat cats. They are like they're fattening themselves up. Um, normally, verse thirteen, we read it. Normally, after the sacrifice was over, it would just be kind of like luck of the draw. It would just be like, oh well, you just get whatever comes out of the pot. But not so with Phineas and Hophni. They had figured out how to gain the system. So they're like walking around while the sacrifices are being made, looking at people's animals. Oh, that one looks nice. They've got an eye for barbecue. <laughs> this is what they've got. And then after the animal is killed, so these people have brought this, this beautiful animal, this specimen, this fine, fat animal that they could, but before the sacrifice is made, kill this animal, but before the sacrifice is made, Hophni and Phineas would send one of their lackeys, send one of their lackeys demanding cuts of meat from, from this animal. They're like exploiting the very people that they're charged with caring for, is what they're doing. Instead of bringing God's blessing and purification to people, they are in the verse 16 right here, they're, they're threatening people with violence, is what they're doing. Like, hand over the meat! Oh, you don't want to? We'll make you an offer. You can't, you like, you can't refuse. Like, you, you like your knees? I can, 
that's the sort of thing that's being that's like embedded in this passage. A few verses uh, down in verse 22, we actually heard it read, uh, Now Eli was very old, and he heard about everything his sons were doing to all of Israel. And then we get another detail. And how they slept with the women who served at the entrance of the tent of meeting. In a patriarchal ancient society, do you think these women had much choice when powerful men wanted to sleep with them? The answer is probably not. Hot, so, so let's just survey this. Hobby and Phineas, these two jokers, they are greedy, corrupt, and violent. They are using civil and religious authority for personal economic gain and to sexually exploit women. Doesn't that sound like everything wrong with the world that we like read in the newspapers? <laughs> like seriously, doesn't that this sounds really fresh? This is there's nothing new here. These guys are fattening themselves up on whatever they can grab. With power, like with the little bit of power they've been given, they're grabbing everything they can, and it's never enough, is it? It's never enough. They are like they're fat cats, but they're still hollow. They're still hollow. Not it is not satisfying them. They are fattening themselves up, but they are never getting. They just need more and more and more. They're empty of everything that matters. And so Eli, he's, he said, man, I've heard about you, what you guys are doing and how, and how you're sleeping with women and exploiting them. And so verse 23, it says, so he said to them, why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. I should say so. If one person, so if one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? Eli say, we, us, you, my sons, and me, we are the people, we are the priests, we are the people who help people sort out their differences. When one person, like, wrongs another, we can step in and, like, mediate between them, like, invoke the mercy of God. Like, Bob is really sorry that his ox, like, gored yours. I'm sorry. He's making restitution. The Lord would have you forgive Bob and his ox for what's, for what's happened. But, that's what happens when one sins against another. But like you, my sons, you're sinning with a high hand. You're wronging everyone. You're abusing the system. You're burning down the world. You're sinning against God himself. Your lives are spinning in the face of the life giver. Who will intercede for you? And then, end of verse 25, his sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke. Kai, for, because, some semicolon perhaps, ambiguous in the Hebrew, it was the Lord's will to put them to death. 
God, God's judgment is going to fall on the house of Eli. The rest of chapter 2, um, we're not going to read it, Ch uh, verses 27 through uh, 36. Expand on this a little more. If you want to read it later, an anonymous prophet comes to Father Eli and tells him, Hey, your house is going to fall. Your kids are going to die. God's judgment's falling on you. It's the Lord's will to put them to death. That makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Some of us, just hearing it. I, I see a few heads shaking, but the, the longer I've thought about it, I'm not exactly sure why it should make us uncomfortable. Like, at least not all the way. The house of Eli has become the house of Belial. It has become a house of worthlessness. It is worse than a house of cards. It is corrupt. Beyond redemption, it would seem. Do any of us want that house to stand when we read the newspaper? No. The hollow house, the meaningless house, the wicked, abusive house. The house of scoundrels. Do we want that house to stand? No! No, we want, we want God to say no to corruption and abuse and exploitation. When we see this kind of thing on the news, we want God to get rid of this kind of garbage. We could say it this way. Um, you can go ahead and throw the first slide up. We quietly hunger for the judgment of God. Recognize it within yourself. We quietly hunger for the judgment of God. We ache for someone to sort out the world <laughs> when we read the newspaper watch the news. We all quietly hunger for the judgment of God who will banish all Belial from the world, who will right all the world's wrongs, solve all human injustices. That's what we long for, right? Right? That's what something like the Me Too movement is, uh, is aiming at. That's what a whole group of people over the last couple of years is aching for. That's what's behind that hashtag and that movement. Is people, whether or not, like, I know it's controversial, blah, 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 blah. But, like, that's the heart of it. Is people are longing for something to be done about sexual abuse and exploitation and stereotyping. That's the, we hunger for the judgment of God. That's why, regardless of your politics, that's why we long for the day when honesty would somehow reign in Washington, D.C. That's why all of us ache for it, whatever, whatever side of the aisle you're on. Lies and corruption and self-obsessed agendas that like exploit the needy for the sake of the powerful, that just like make our blood boil. Gosh, you just wish someone would do Something about that is the judgment of God that we're aiming for. It's the judgment of God. And what God does with Hophni and Phineas is actually the thing that we're all hungry for. It's the thing we're aiming for. God is speaking no to corruption and evil and the way of death is what God is doing. We could say it this way. Um, God's yes to life necessitates, it requires God's no to death. 
God's yes to life. It requires, necessitates. It is by definition. God's yes to life necessitates God's no to death. If you want to think, if you want a robustly biblical way of thinking about God's judgment, there it is. That is the, the biblical way of thinking about it. We want God to do something about it. We want him to bring about like, the deepest kind of healing and wholeness and prosperity and make the flowers bloom and the grass green and color to spread through the world. We want shalom, is what the ancient Hebrews would call it. If we want yes to shalom, then by definition, no has got to be spoken to Belial. That's what has to happen. If we want God to say yes to life, God must speak no to death. And that's what's happening here with Hoffman and Phineas. These two guys are guys, this is the danger. Their lives have become so deeply saturated in corruption. Their choices and their decisions year after year have been marinating them in death to such a degree that to get rid of the death means we've got to get rid of them, is what's happening. It's like a piece of carpet that's been saturated so much with like mildew and mold that like there's no separating the two anymore, it would seem. And to clean the carpet, you've got to pitch the carpet. You've got to replace the carpet. God's judgment is the deepest kind of good news. It is the miracle that we are all longing for. God will not let death and corruption reign in ancient Israel or in our world today. God's kingdom will banish chaos from the world. But I think the reason that um, this good news makes us so uncomfortable, tell me if I'm wrong, I think the reason it makes us so uncomfortable is that deep down we know we're Hoffman and Phineas. That's why the judgment of God makes us uncomfortable. Oh, sure, it might not be on the grand stage of, like, national politics. It might not be, like, criminal activity. But we know that we're not innocent in the world, don't we? Like, we make selfish decisions at the expense of other people, don't we? We find loopholes in the office, in the politics, in the tax code, so that we can profit. We make decisions year after year after year that we know are not happened, that we know are less than fully alive. God's judgment makes us uncomfortable. All of us, me included, I'm with you in this. Because we know somewhere in us how much we have irritated in death. And then the question becomes, when we talk about God's judgment, the question really at the heart of it for me is, um, when God gets rid of death and corruption, will God get rid of me? That's the question. Will God's no to death necessitate God's saying no to me? I think we're right to feel this. I think we're right to feel this. Because if we were to vote C.S. Lewis for a second, every daughter of Eve and every son of Adam 
shares the sickness of Eli's sons. We all share the sickness. We selfishly, with what little power we have, we use everything in our lives. Tell me if I'm wrong. Our default way that we live is to grab everything that we can to fatten ourselves up, to fatten our reputations, to fatten our significance, to make ourselves more significant, more pleasure, more powerful, more than other people. That's what we, that's how we live every day. And we still find ourselves hollow. We find ourselves empty. We're fattening ourselves up and we never get full. We just need more and more. And I'm not wrong, am I? More highs. Whatever your high is. More wins. Just want that next win. More followers. More sexual excitement. More perfection in whatever it is that we do. More recognition in our career. It's never enough, is it? More and more. That's the sickness that we all share. We find ourselves consumed with consuming. And then we find ourselves empty of everything that matters. If we don't see ourselves just a little bit as Hoffman and Phineas, I think we're not being completely honest. We all have like Hoffman on the inside. We all have Phineas in us at some level. But here's the thing. Click, click, click. Here's the thing. Hoffie and Phineas aren't the main characters of this story. They're not the main. They're not the main characters of this story. They are not the main characters that we are invited to identify ourselves with and our lives with. This is good news. Who then is the main character? You might ask. Who are we supposed to identify with? Well, the primary character in all of Scripture, from cover to cover, is the story of God and his people. That's the, that is the main story. We can lose sight of this when we get into, like, second chapter of 1 Samuel. But the two main characters, specifically in the Old Testament, are between God and the nation of Israel. There's this entire people that God has set free from slavery. And he calls them, you can go ahead and throw that slide up. He calls them, my firstborn son. You will let my firstborn son go. Let my people go. He is my child. You are my child. I will have you be let go, set free, so that you may worship me. The primary story of the Old Testament is the story of God setting his child free. That is the main story of the Old Testament. Setting his child free so that he can worship him. That's what's happening here in 1 Samuel 2. That's what's happening. Zoom out just a little bit. Zoom out. This is a story about God seeing something corrupt and wicked in his child and saying, I'm going to get rid of that. I'm going to get rid of that. And I'm going to bring in something into my child. Chapter 2 actually serves as like a hinge point in, uh, in 1 Samuel. 
We see the sickness within God's firstborn son, Israel. The corruption is just brought about to Israel. It's so disgusting. And God's assuring, I'm going to get rid of that in my child. But there's something else happening in this chapter, too. Did you guys see it? It was happening even as Erica read. Verse 18, but Samuel was ministering before the Lord. Verse 21, meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Verse 26, and the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and favor with the Lord and people. In the next chapter, we're going to get to the call of Samuel. It's familiar to a lot of people. He's in the middle of the night. Samuel, Samuel, and you know that's the, that's the the story that's coming to that we're coming to. But chapter two is showing us that God is working for the salvation of His firstborn child, His Son. He's working for the salvation of His child by slaying wickedness within Him. That's the big picture of what's happening here. I think if we step back just for a second, we're invited to zoom out to identify ourselves not with Hophni and Phineas. We're asked to identify ourselves with God's firstborn son. We're invited to, if this seems like a stretch, I need you to remember that the book of Samuel was not originally called a history book. The book of Samuel wasn't primarily concerned with things that happened back then, once upon a time, to another group of people. The Jewish scriptures are divided up into the law, the prophets, and the writings. Do you know where Samuel falls? The prophets. That's what Samuel is. He's in the prophets. This is a spiritual narrative. This is, sure, it does have historical roots, and it tells us about things that did happen, but even more deeply, this book is inviting us to examine ourselves, is what this book's inviting us to do. It's living history. That's prophetically speaking to the people of God in the present and throughout the centuries. The Spirit has, like, asked the people of God to consider yourself in light of this story. The primary story of the Old Testament. The story of God setting his child free again and again so that he can worship him. God has birthed, in this chapter, God has birthed something new in the midst of the old. God is simultaneously judging sin within his firstborn son and raising up faithfulness at the same time. God is dooming corruption and growing integrity. He's birthing life in the midst of death. And now that's getting really close to like Easter kind of language, isn't it? That's getting, and there is a reason for that. If it sounds like something, life in the midst of death, there's a really good reason why. It's because God's judgment always looks like the cross and resurrection. There is good news about God's judgment. It's what we're trying to get here. We are, we've crested the hill and we're plunging toward down into something refreshing right here. Because there is something being put to death 
but it's always for the sake of more life. More and better life. In the case of the cross, in the case of the actual cross, you have the sin of the entire world being condemned and crucified so that true human life can emerge from the tomb. That's, that's what you've got in the cross and the resurrection. This is the that is the place, the cross and the resurrection, that is the place where the entire story of God and his people comes racing into a climax. God himself somewhere seems to have recognized the dilemma that if you slay the world, if you slay every Phineas and Hophni in the world and purge the world that way, you are left with an empty world. God's people never experience complete healing in the Old Testament. God's firstborn son, set free from chains of Egypt, continually finds himself enslaved to more corruption and death. That's the entire Old Testament. Every single one of us shares the sickness of Eli's sons. And so, in the fullness of time, the God of Israel becomes an Israelite. In the fullness of time, God enters the story of his own people. And so, we can say it this way. This is the mysterious gospel that we cling to. God unites himself to his sinful people so his people can be separated from their sin. Christians believe that Jesus is the place where God condemns sin without condemning us. In the cross, God does condemn the sins of the world. He damns it to hell. And in the resurrection of Jesus, God brings new life to the world. In the cross, we could say, God slays us as sinners. And in the resurrection, God raises us as children. Jesus, the God the Son Eternal, becomes one of his own people to make his people true sons and daughters. God comes as Jesus, and he infinitely fulfills Israel's mantle as God's firstborn son to such a degree that the earliest Christians said, do you want to identify yourself with someone? This is what you should do. Identify yourself with Jesus. I know you're a sinner. I know that you're Hophni and Phineas and sick and bloated and broken. I get it, but Jesus includes you. He, guys, he includes you in his cross and his resurrection. So identify yourself with Jesus. Because he has already identified himself with you. That's the gospel. He is birthing life in the midst of your death. Jesus is who we are always invited to identify ourselves with. Because Jesus is how we understand the judgment of God. The hanging statements in this chapter that make us most uncomfortable... Find clarity in Jesus. Who will intercede for you if you sin with a high hand against God? 
Well, God will. Always. You can spit in the face of the life giver. We have. You can nail the life giver to a tree outside of the gates of Jerusalem, and he will intercede for you. Father, forgive them. And yes, yes, it is God's will to put the sons of Belial to death. Yes, but even more is it God's will to raise them up again as sons of God. God says no to sin and death in the world, in you, in me. God does. He says no to sin and death, but it's always, always, always so that he can say yes to love and life. In you. Amen. Amen. So what we're trying to say this morning could be said this way. God's judgment means that our Father is committed to the painful healing of His children. His yes to life is a painful yes. Because it means that the death in us has got to die. But make no mistake, the heart behind God's judgment is always this. Healing. Resurrection. New life. Creation. Children. That's what we see in this chapter. We see God healing his firstborn son of Israel. God said no to corruption. And yes, to faithfulness. God growing something good and beautiful, even as he painfully banishes darkness. This is what God does in 1 Samuel 2. This is what God himself embodies in the cross, in the resurrection of Jesus. And this morning, this is what all of our lives, this is what God invites us into. Every day. It is God's will but it's always for the sake of raising you from the dead. Amen. More alive than ever. And so as the band, uh, as the band comes up, as the communion servers, you can come forward. Um, I just want us to um, enter into just a tiny prayer before we come to the table. The Spirit uh, uses a word like this to work on us in different ways. Um, and some of us are in seasons where we feel like we're under the judgment of God in some way, shape, or form. In a room like this, some of us carried that in here. We feel like, like maybe it's your circumstances, your life circumstances. Maybe it's like a recurring thought that you have. Maybe it's just like a cloud that hangs over you and that you feel. I have no idea what it is um, for you. And I, um, I have no idea whether or not it actually is judgment for God. <laughs> That's the, what I could say. Um, but what would it look like this morning? As we prepare to come to the table, what would it look like for you to recognize that whatever's happening in your life, if it's the judgment of God, then it's for your good. It's for your life. Some of us, um, as we are centering ourselves in prayer, some of us maybe recognize areas in our life that are belly all. Like, if we got honest, we know they're without profit. They're valueless. They're without substance. They're areas in our life where we're like entertaining death. 
what would it look like for you uh, to submit those areas of your life to the judgment of God? What would it look like to say, Spirit, come and judge me? Purge me of wickedness, of substancelessness, of all corruption? What would it look like to open yourself up to our Father, who is absolutely committed to your healing? The healing of God is 